The answer is not to defund our police departments. It's to fund our police and give them all the tools they need, training and foundation and partners and protectors in our, that our communities need. President Biden has been consistent about his support for police. But for many activists, hearing him say, fund the police, it can feel like a bit of a betrayal. That's because Biden gained momentum in his run for the presidency as calls for police reform grew after the 2020 police killing of George Floyd. Then candidate Biden knelt with demonstrators during protests against police brutality across the U.S. He met with families of victims and he promised change. But since getting elected, the Biden administration has remained adamant that defunding the police is not the answer. In fact, more funding, proper training and community policing have been at the center of Biden's agenda on this. Republicans, meanwhile, have insisted that Democrats are trying to destroy or eliminate police departments, and they've repeatedly said that Democrats are soft on crime. For over a year, Democrats and left-wing activists have been calling over and over and over again to defund the police. And many Democrat-led city councils and Democrat mayors have done so, cutting and even slashing police budgets. And as crime rates increase, Republican tactics have been effective here. Many Democrats are now distancing themselves from that defund the police slogan in an attempt to save their majorities as the midterms approach. I quote one of my colleagues from New York, Richie, Richie Torres, a brand new member of Congress, way on the left, uh, saying that defund the police is dead. That causes a concern with a few in our caucus. But Public safety is our responsibility. But still, Biden did promise reform. And so far, his efforts have come off as lackluster. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act seems to be dead in the water, and loose guidelines in the American Rescue Plan are allowing communities to continue funding their police departments as they always have. So as the midterms get closer, can the White House and Democrats clarify their messaging on police reform? And is it too late for Biden to make significant progress here? Plus, with states and cities taking matters into their own hands, does the president run the risk of losing the support of the communities that played a huge part in getting him elected? This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. There are many activists who claim that they are the ones who came up with the term defund the police. I asked Washington Post reporter Cleve Woodson to walk me through the evolution of the defund the police movement and the Democratic Party's battle to disconnect itself from the slogan. My earliest hearing of it was actually some years ago in Philadelphia when activists who were sort of fed up at police brutality, who are fed up at the amount of resources that go to police as opposed to other issues, begin using the term defund the police or using the term abolition to talk about basically stripping away funding from police departments and moving it to, to other entities, social services, disenfranchised communities, any number of organizations that are not the police. Over time, we've seen some increased backlash to that actual phrase, defund the police. Are you able to, to share what we've seen in that regard? Even the activists that I've talked to over the last couple of years will admit that the phrase can be easily hijacked. Defund the police for some people means taking away resources from police and putting them to other social services and to other communities and things like that. But 
to other people, people that are not activists, people that are not out in the streets marching, there's this image of needing the police but being unable to get them. There was a really interesting ad at the end of Trump's presidency that was like the 911 caller got a recording and it was just the police have been defunded. There's nobody to respond. You have reached the 911 police emergency line. Due to defunding of the police department, we're sorry, but no one is here to take your call. If you're calling to report a rape, please press 1 to report a murder. So it was just an easily hijacked phrase that opponents could use to say that activists or Democrats, Joe Biden, everybody wants to take away police funding and leave a vacuum. Yeah, it does seem as though lately we hear the phrase defund the police come more from Republicans who are trying to sort of pin the the movement on all Democrats, whether they've expressed support for defunding or not. Has this been an effective attack for them on Democratic opponents? I think pollsters would say yes. And, and the, the evidence that it's an effective attack is the fact that they keep using it, right? There's arguably only one Democrat, Cory Bush, who was a Black Lives Matter activist before coming to Congress, who's actually running or has spoken in support of defunding the police or abolition. You know, oh, defund the police makes people, it, it, it pushes people back. It makes people feel a type of way. We don't want to say that, you know, because the Republicans are coming against us. No, you know, they don't get to tell us what our message is. Fix the problem and then I won't have to say defund the police. Fix the problem and I won't Every other Democrat has come out either against it or sort of going into these nuanced sayings, right? Like it is important to evaluate whether or not police receive an outsized amount of funding as opposed to other agencies. What Republicans have found, particularly Republicans running on a law and order message, is that it's very, very easy to paint Democrats as being 100 percent all of them are for defund the police. This is the latest iteration of crime and punishment argument that I would say mostly Republicans, but really a lot of politicians from across the political aisle have been using for decades, like not just since Nixon, but like since birth of a nation, right? Since the not the 1900s, the 1800s, to say that one group is going to basically make you less safe. So vote for me because I'll make you more safe. But at the same time, you mentioned polling and where Americans stand on defund the police. But the idea of police reform is something that has at least historically polled pretty well among Americans. Is this a, a semantics debate? Is it about the actual phrase that's being used? Do Americans want to see police reform but just aren't responding well to this defund the police slogan? Yeah, it's a more complex question than it seems on its face. If you talk to Americans, if you poll Americans, you'll see that a lot of them do want to see um, some form of police reform. A vast swath of Americans would like to see sort of more funding to police, but to funding the right kind of policing. They don't want to see black people killed in the street by rogue police officers or overly policed low-income neighborhoods. They want to see officers that are that are paid well, but also sort of paid to do policing in the right way. It's a hard time to be a police officer in America. So I want to make sure you have the tools to be the partners and the protectors your communities need. That when you look at what your communities need and what you're being asked to do, there isn't going to be, there are going to be more resources, not fewer resources to help you do your job. The reason that that becomes increasingly complex is because it's been really hard for us as a society and policing as an entity to sort of come up with what is exactly 
the right way. The reason that all these defund the police and abolition advocates exist is because they think that police departments historically are a hammer and they see everything as a nail. They respond with outsized force and outsized violence, and it decimates black communities. And so their concept of what is the right way to go forward differs vastly from folks in the suburbs or from Joe Biden, who, who has said for decades that we should just put more money for more training into community policing. So how is community policing defined? What does that mean? Community policing is a term that was coined in in the 90s that is sort of a counter to this militarized and distant cold policing, right? It is, as Biden has talked about it, it is cops getting out and knowing the people that they're policing, knowing the shopkeepers, knowing the community leaders, knowing the community members. Policing as not just making arrests and locking people up, but also being an integral part of the community and therefore not just not just reaching crime or having an impact on crime after it happens, but sort of being an integral part in preventing crime from happening. That's why I propose we invest, in, we invest again in community policing. We know it works. The one thing that protects cops is another cop. The difficulty there is that community policing sounds good and is very, very easy to say, but the implementation of that, like what what that looks like on a ground level. Is it cops going to parks? Is it cops playing basketball with kids? You know, how do you build relationships with with people that you also may have to arrest at some point? It it just becomes such a, a very, very complicated issue. And that complication is very difficult to sort of get through in a 30-second ad or in a political speech, especially when it's really easy for Republicans to simply say Democrats want to defund the police. Yeah, it, it's so complicated. How, how do Democrats in the White House control the messaging on such a nuanced and complex issue? What is the White House saying they want to do when it comes to police reform? Well, I think the main message that the White House has tried to send recently is that we're not for defund the police. And Biden said it in the State of the Union. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. So that's the first thing. Now, I asked Joe Biden this question actually a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Cleve, you had a question. Where is he? Uh, thanks, Mr. President. Okay, you're, you're funding the police, but what does that mean? Or what does that look like when it comes to police reform? And Biden is sort of an old school Democrat who is for community policing, who is for increased police training and all of that stuff. We do know that intervention programs work. We do know that what police need, they, they, they need psychologists in the department as much as they need extra rifles. They need people who are in the department who can deal with the crisis that the police are going through as well dealing with their crises, dealing with their mental state and how they're handling things. They need how they need social workers engaged with them. I lay it all out. There's a, 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 and it all works. If you see these community intervention programs, they work. They actually reduce crime. There's some caveats to that. Criminologists and activists will say a lot of this sort of community policing or giving more money to cops for training doesn't really work or is in need of a, a large-scale overhaul. So it's unclear whether Biden is right on the issue, but the message that he's trying to send is that they're not anti-police. Isn't it kind of fascinating? When I first got elected, I was being beat up because I supported the police too much for the previous 30 years. No. 
That's what I think. And it especially seems difficult at this moment in time in America as crime increases in a lot of major cities across the country. How does that play a role in the message that Democrats in the White House are trying to project when it comes to police reform? If you look at a city like Philadelphia, last year, Philadelphia had maybe more than 650 homicides. It was more homicides in the city of brotherly love since anybody's been keeping count, right? Meanwhile, Philadelphia is also, as we talked about, the center of this abolitionist, the center of this sort of default on the police movement, right? So it makes it really, really hard for activists, for people who want to see large-scale police reform to sort of make that argument reach the masses. Because the other side is saying, look, look at look at a city like Philadelphia, look at Chicago, look at Minnesota, places where they've tried to quote-unquote defund the police, or where police reform has been sought in this way that activists want, and look at the problems that those cities are having. Now, that argument is, is kind of a lie. No city has largely defunded its police department, not even Minneapolis, right? But that argument on its face becomes this miasma of this argument doesn't work. This is a losing argument. This is a failing argument. And this failing argument is going to ultimately make you unsafe. You know, we've talked a lot about the political messaging here, but I'm wondering what type of policing reform efforts have we actually seen from the Biden administration at this point? The Biden administration and the American Rescue Plan basically said cities can use some of the money that they're getting for the American Rescue Plan for policing reforms of their choice. Now, I asked the Biden administration, what, is that, what does that look like? Are you requiring them to, to do a certain thing or to not just put more cops on the street? And what, what the Biden administration told me was, well, we're not having a one-size-fits-all approach to this. And, and my interpretation of that is that cities are going to do what they have, by and large, done for, for a very long time. There are some areas that have sought other community interventions or to hire more social workers or to have people that go out with police. But a lot of cities, including other places that have had large abolition or defund the police or police reform movements, have responded to this rise in crime by just simply hiring more police officers. When you talk to advocates, when you talk to people that were really in the streets after the killing of George Floyd and who are tired of police brutality, what they'll say is, we've given up basically trying to reach Biden. We've given up trying to get this reform through even the federal Congress, right? They're instead focusing their efforts, their energy, their time, and their money on city councils, on mayor's races, on electing DAs that will prosecute rogue police officers and all of that stuff. Washington gridlock has really turned a lot of these activists off to the point where they're just like, the Democratic Party writ large isn't going to do anything for us. Let's let's see if we can focus our, our efforts on a hyper-local basis and try to get change that way. One city that's looking to make its own changes in policing is Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison says the road to reform has been long and not always forward-moving, at least nationally. The 1994 crime bill contained legal authorization for the Department of Justice to do pattern and practice investigations. Eric Holder in the Obama administration, he did a lot of them. But, you know, as soon as Trump got in, he discontinued all these consent agreements. Then we're back to square one again. 
But recently, progress has also stalled locally. In June of 2020, a majority of Minneapolis city council members pledged to defund and dismantle the police department. But in the years since, those same elected officials have softened their tone. Minneapolis never disbanded its police department, instead investing over $6 million in police recruitment. Every time there is a crime spike, legislatures, state and federal, get very, very reluctant to pass any laws that would regulate police conduct. Ellison says now is not the time for communities to turn their back on Biden and the Democratic Party. It's much easier to fault the person who was closer to you because you can shame them. It might make you feel better, but it doesn't do any good. Kenny Do That producer Sharla Freeland spoke with Ellison for more. I would tell people they shouldn't feel left behind by President Biden's promises. You can fairly blame President Biden if he won't do anything, but President Biden's not the problem. I mean, I can tell you somebody who's neck deep in this, I've never thought to myself, only if Biden were different. No, he's doing what he can do. I would just remind people that it's a long march to to freedom. And uh, if you're like, look, I've been marching for two years and we still haven't eliminated racism, I'm like... Dear, let me talk to you. You know, there were people who had no reason to, no reason to believe they were going to be successful, but they struggled anyway. Martin Luther King had no reason to believe he was going to end Jim Crow on the buses in Montgomery. But he didn't care what the odds were. He cared about justice, and so he fought for it. So what I say to people is keep on, keep pushing, don't quit, don't stop. And by the way, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. So I'm not like some Biden guy, you know, but I, I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, Biden hasn't done everything he could. And I think he's actually performed pretty well, but he just he just needs a few more votes in the Senate and he can get it done. So how much credit should Biden get for what he's done on reform so far? I think he gets a lot of credit for trying. I mean, he said, I want to see the George Floyd Justice Policing Act passed and on my desk. Tim Scott and the Republicans in the Senate blocked that. After years, and I do mean years, of Democrats touting unpopular defund the police policies, they have finally seen the light. Maybe it's the light on their sinking polling numbers and are now voicing support for funding our men and women in uniform. Presidents aren't kings. They don't just get to do whatever they want. They have to have bills passed through the House and the Senate and land on their desk. Then they can sign them. I will say that his Justice Department has been actively involved and engaged. They actually stepped up and prosecuted the three officers who assisted Derek Chauvin in killing George Floyd. That's under the watch of President Biden and Merrick Garland, the, his choice for attorney general. I mean, I will tell you this. The president called the Floyd family after the verdict in, in the Chauvin case. And, um, you know, President Biden talked directly to George Floyd's daughter and his brother and other family members. So did uh, Vice President Harris do the same. So, I mean, that, that matters. That's not passing legislation, but it does signal concern. And so I, how is he doing? I think that he's doing as well as he can, given the very serious limitations that I'm quite aware of. Before becoming attorney general, you served as representative for Minnesota's 5th Congressional District from 2017 to 2019. So slow progress isn't exactly new to you coming from Congress. What would you like to see from some of your former colleagues and from newer members when it comes to policing reform? Well, let's just start with passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. 
you know, it would put up a national database on police misconduct. So a police officer, say, for example, you take the police officer who killed Tamir Rice in Ohio. That officer was told by another department that he was so mentally infirm that he could not serve as a police officer in their department. And then he goes to another department where he jumps out of the car and shoots 12-year-old Tamir Rice. We need a database which says if you've been fired for any kind of misconduct, then you're on a national database. You're not going to work in policing anymore. A lot of officers will negotiate union contracts which state that the disciplinary investigation will end when the officer quits. Now, that means you get a lot of voluntary quits, which basically stops the investigation, which means there's no finding, which means they can just go to another department. So uh, we've got to make sure that that's not going to be permissible either. And, you know, and then we need to ban no-knock warrants. They're, they're not really useful. No-knock warrants are considered one of the most dangerous and intrusive police tactics. They've been at the center of this debate in recent years over police use of force. And President Biden has looked to limit their use for federal agents, though some of his plans have stalled. The Post just did a deep dive investigation into the deadly consequences of no-knocks, the devastation that's caused by this kind of policing, and the often limited oversight of these warrants. You can hear all of that on The Washington Post's brand new podcast called Broken Doors. Now, on the day the first episodes of that podcast published in early April, prosecutors decided that police would not face charges in a big case involving a fatal shooting during the execution of a no-knock warrant in Minneapolis, the case of Amir Locke. Charla's conversation with Minnesota's Attorney General Ellison was just a few days after that decision. So, she asked him about it. Earlier this month, you concluded that the officer who fatally shot Locke would not face charges for the killing. How do you come to that conclusion? We would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, carrying the burden as the state, that the officer acted unreasonably when he used deadly force, when the underlying fact is that he had a firearm pointed in his direction. So when he broke into the apartment with a no-knock warrant, we have not discovered any evidence that Amir Locke did anything wrong at all. Probably he was startled. He thought somebody was invading his home. It's not clear that he ever pointed the gun, but the officer was in the line of fire of the gun. Maybe it was inadvertent, but under Graham versus Connor, we are required to look at it from the standpoint of the police officer as to whether the officer used deadly force. And if the officer says, look, I had a gun pointed at me, I shot to protect myself and officers, That's not a case we're going to be able to prevail on. And so as a prosecutor, you cannot ethically bring cases that you do not believe you can win on. You know, you can't just put somebody on trial and see what happens. It was a tragic incident, a very, very sad, very difficult. But it doesn't stop forward motion in terms of the movement to stop and end excessive force, police violence, police brutality. After the break, we hear from a police reform activist in Minneapolis about whether the defund the police slogan has been helpful or harmful for her work. Minister Janae Bates is one of the community organizers who worked with the Yes for Minneapolis campaign in 2021. Yes for Minneapolis was an effort that sought to replace the Minneapolis Police Department with a new Department of Public Safety. 
organizers went door to door in the city to get the amendment on the ballot in November of 2021, and they succeeded, but the charter did not. More than 56% of voters rejected the measure after opponents like Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar criticized the plan's lack of detail. Bates, however, continues to push for policing reform through her work with Isaiah, a community coalition that advocates for racial and economic justice in Minnesota. She says change won't happen if the community isn't mobilized. Yes for Minneapolis was a very large coalition of people across the city of Minneapolis, across race, income, gender, generation. The sole goal of it was to create a safer city for the residents who live there. A primary way to do that was by creating a Department of Public Safety, which would replace the current Minneapolis Police Department with a far more expansive department that includes many of the qualified professionals that the city needs in order to to create more safety. A big thing that we did with this campaign is we went around talking to tens of thousands of people and we asked them to answer the question, what does safety look like to you? And we really forced them to do it in a concrete way. So not just say, oh, I'll feel warm and fuzzies. Like, it's like, what does it actually look like? What does your neighbor look like? What does your streets look like? What does your home look like? And there was not one person in those tens of thousands of conversations, not one person said, I see a bunch of police strolling our streets. Not one, not even the police officers that we ask. And so we have to we have to remember that. Were you finding that Yes for Minneapolis was lumped in with defund the police as a slogan and as a movement? Was that something that your opponents and maybe proponents were doing? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was. We most certainly had to combat that pretty frequently. And when I say combat it, I mean just what you named, that proponents and uh, opponents have different uh, notions of what that slogan means. And so, quite frankly, the entire time that we were fighting to be able to keep the residents of the city safe, and that's every single resident, no matter the color of their skin, how much or little money they had, or what zip code they lived in, we were instead embroiled in arguments and debates about slogans and slogans that had differing meanings um, depending on who was saying it. And so it became highly weaponized um, in a way that was completely unhelpful, especially for the residents of the city. And it really was a huge disservice. And and so I want to be clear that I'm not saying that the slogan itself or the meaning, because again, that's just, it is so incredibly subjective to what you mean when you say it. And so the the reality is that we we ended up getting into an argument about something that had absolutely nothing to do with the change that needed to, to happen in the city. When it comes to the families of these victims who seem to be most directly affected, most immediately, have you noticed if they tend to be in favor of, quote unquote, defund the police, or are they for a more nuanced approach like Yes for Minneapolis or something that President Biden is proposing that gives more funding to police in order to train them and to give them the things that they need to do better community policing, for example. They are where most people are, is that they want real resolve. And if we're being very honest, which I think we need a lot more political integrity in this conversation, is that we have to get out of this ridiculous binary of fund or defund. The reality is, is neither of those slogans, phrases, niche things that we say uh, when we're doing stump speeches or what have you, those are not 
things that actually ensure to keep people safe. It's not the things that folks are crying out when their loved ones are killed by police or by anyone. What we actually need are real solutions and neither of those are the solution. On this campaign with Yes for Minneapolis, I kept getting asked over and over, isn't this about really defunding the police? And and I always had to bring people back to what this was really about. I usually use this analogy that I find very helpful. I want you to consider that there was a person and this person, all they ever had was rice their entire life. That's all they've ever been offered. And technically the human body can survive on rice and water alone, but they will be drastically malnourished. They would not be healthy by any demonstrable measure. And so one day some folks come to them and they say, hey, if you say yes, we will get you fruits, vegetables, and some proteins into your diet gradually so that you can truly be healthy. And right when this person is like, that sounds great, I'm gonna say yes. Folks who've been supplying them the rice come and scream, no, they're trying to take your rice. They wanna take away all your rice. And so a lot of times you'll hear like, well, maybe we don't, we can keep them just on rice and we just need maybe some brown rice or some locally sourced rice. And it's just like, let's actually make sure people have all the things that they need to be whole and safe. So in the case of Yes for Minneapolis, we're, we're talking far less actually about police and far more about mental health professionals, about social workers, about violence interrupters. And we're asking police officers be all of those things, plus like homeless outreach and counselors. Why wouldn't we actually make sure that we're creating a true public safety in the city and utilizing people who have these skills and talents to use those and then use police for the, the very small fraction of the things that we actually need to use them for? It's really about just being smart and good stewards and effective and safe. Janae, thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you. After hearing local leaders and activists talk about the slow pace of progress, I wondered if time was running out for President Biden to make policing reform a hallmark of his time in office, like he's claimed he wants to do. I turned back to my colleague Cleve Woodson to weigh in. So if activists have started to give up, for lack of a better word, on, on Biden and making progress there, does that mean it's Biden's run out of time to make significant policing reform efforts? Like coming into this administration, it really seemed like he wanted this to be a hallmark of his time in office and it was a, a priority as he stated it. And it seems like now in the list of priorities is falling down. And so has Biden moved on as far as we know? Are there going to be big efforts in the next several years? Sure. I mean, and, and we even remember Biden telling George Floyd's family, we're going to get something done. We're going to get something done. My conversations with the Floyd family, I spoke to them again today. I assure them we're going to continue to fight for the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act so we can, I can sign the law as quickly as possible. And so far, the answer at large has, has been no, they're, they're not, they're not going to get something done. I mean, A, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act died. Over and over again, we've seen sort of failure after failure. Now, Biden does have some things in his toolkits. The administration has told me they're still mulling executive action to do some of the things that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for example, would have done. But most large-scale reforms would have to be passed by Congress. Congress has shown itself to be unable or unwilling to sort of pass these large-scale reforms. And 
The clock is ticking. Democrats hold governing majorities in Washington. They're not expected to do too well in the midterms. We don't know yet. We can't predict yet. But they're not expected to do too well. And if they lose a governing majority in one of those houses, the large-scale efforts at police reform will just die. If you look at polling, people were really, really heavily for police reform in the summer of 2020, when people were marching in the streets, when everybody you knew had turned into an activist. And then as crime ticked up, as COVID ticked up, as other priorities sort of began to come to the fore, people's attitudes towards police reform softened. And so what you see is like Biden and other politicians are sort of tracking those attitudes, hewing to the center of the party or hewing to where most Americans' softening attitudes about police reform are, as opposed to just being these villainous people who are like, no, we're just going to fund the police. It's kind of easy to pin this on politicians and say, like, hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And they, they were they were for defund the police and abolition and police reform, and now they're not. But a, a large part of it is us. All right, Cleve, I appreciate you unpacking all of this for us. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, anytime. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. 